Why do companies make gender neutral lines and then just fill it with mask and clothing? That's ridiculous. That's absurd. If we want truly gender neutral clothes, let's embrace both mask and femme and all new ideas. And let's put them together into a true gender neutral line. Stop making mask clothes, gender neutral clothes. People can wear whatever the fuck they want. Calling a graphic tee unisex or gender neutral is not groundbreaking. When I was in high school, we had a uniform and I could not find shorts that were the correct length in the women's department. So what the fuck did I do is I went to the men's department and I got khaki shorts from the men's department and they fit perfectly. Because gender is a social construct. Because gender is a social construct. I called them my man pants. They were the best. (laughs) I used to buy sweaters from the men's section at Old Navy because when I was 16, I was really like, you know, not like other girls. So I wanted to wear the baggy sweaters, you know. Like I'm so girls. confused at your high school experience because sometimes when you talk about high school, you're like, I wear skirts and high heels all the time. Listen. And then you come out with this shit. Those baggy, baggy sweaters were over skirts. Interesting. I had a lot of feelings about my body and I sure. dressed it in a multitude of ways because I was 16. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you miss in history class. Hey Lexi, what's your favorite article of clothing? My overalls. Your Madewell overalls? Yes, which you had for a while since the turn of the traveling I had for overalls. a year. Yeah. More I had than them year. for just over a year, yeah. Yeah. Um, I used to wear them to the farmer's market that Lexi and I used to go to together and it was like, Lexi was coming to the farmer's market with me. They're very good overalls. <laughs> Sponsor the podcast, Madewell? Please. And Haley, what's your most embarrassing fashion moment? All right, so I'll take pride in this, but pretty embarrassing looking back on it. Seventh to eighth grade was not a great look for me. Maybe it's because I was being like bullied and like I was just going through teenage, beginner teenage angst, but my favorite color is yellow. And I was at the mall one day and saw yellow sneakers, like Kool-Aid had a sneaker line where it was scratch and sniff on the sole. <gasps> lemon pear. That's amazing. So I wore those. Oh, but it gets so much worse. I was still a small child and my mom kind of was like, all right, you need to dress like a little more adult, but you're still in middle school and like shit's cheap. But I was still shopping at the children's place and I got one of their like sweatsuit sets. Like I was wearing sweatsuit sets before it was cool. Uh, but I I got yellow so I would wear that with the yellow sneakers under it would be my Jonas Brothers tee anywho it was one of those tees that you got from Kohl's that came with like the tie and you wore the tie with t-shirt but then also if it was cold I'd wear my yellow north face honestly for some of the bullying I accept it no if you bullied me because I was wearing all yellow in a Jonas Brothers tee you're right here's the thing and here's how we were definitely meant to be friends if i'd seen you like in the fifth grade and you were wearing that fit i would be like that bitch is my new best friend and i would have run up to you and i've been like hey like have you read aragon or whatever i was into then but i would have been obsessed with you i probably would have had you know a crush on you which of course of course i would have but i would have been like that bitch who always wears yellow 
loved it's also her. my like start of my harry potter phase so like <laughs> this is sweet time for Haley. and i'm alana and adore me do you want to sponsor the podcast yes. our dms are open This is not a rhetorical question. I genuinely want an answer. Did you know that a black woman designed First Lady Jackie Kennedy's wedding dress? Yes, no. I did. That's Haley funny. gets a brownie point. Okay, so that's right. When Jackie tied the knot with future president JFK, she was donning a dress designed by one of the country's most notable designers, Anne Lowe. The dress was actually destroyed in an accident just like days before the wedding. But Anne stayed up for days, like overnight for several several days to recreate it at her own cost and didn't charge Jackie for the, the new dress. When Anne brought the completed dress to the wedding venue, she was refused entrance and told she could enter through the back door to deliver the dress because the venue was segregated. She refused saying she would only bring the dress through the front door. Then she walked right in the front door and gave the dress to Jackie. Here is what sucks though. Jackie never gave Anne the credit she deserved. In interviews, she referred to Anne as a colored dressmaker and never credited her by name, which was like thousands of dollars of free publicity that Jackie took from her. That's horrible. Jackie definitely felt guilty about it. And we'll get into that later. There's evidence that she was definitely like feeling guilty later on. Anne remained a secret among America's most wealthy women. And she designed intentionally only for the most elite families in good social standing. In an interview for Ebony, she said this was because she valued her work and refused to dress social climbers. She only wanted people of status to wear her art. Anne was born in Alabama to a family of seamstresses. She was a third generation seamstress. Her grandmother had been an enslaved dressmaker and seamstress, making clothes for the plantation family that had enslaved her. And she was actually freed in 1860 and used her sewing skills to make a living as a free woman. And Anne's mother was talented with needlework as well, recognized in the region for her skill in embroidery on gowns. While her mother and her grandmother sewed for the wealthiest families of Alabama, Anne sat by watching and learning. Her family knew teaching her to sew dresses would set her up for a solid occupation for life and give her a steady income despite the racial prejudice she would face as an adult. It was at her family's shop where she developed her signature style, creating hyper-realistic flowers made of silk and other soft fabrics to put onto dresses. So if you've ever seen that style, she's the one who kind of originated the style of making little embroidery flowers and then sewing them onto things. When Anne was only 16, her mother passed away, leaving behind a legacy of dressmaking skill and four unfinished gowns intended for the first lady of Alabama to wear for the ball season. Anne finished the dresses herself, and thus her long career designing for the ladies of America's highest social standings began. Anne attended design school in New York starting in 1917, but was the only Black student in all her classes. The school had accepted her without knowing that she was a Black woman, and upon her arrival, doubted that she could even afford the $1,500 for the annual tuition. $1,500 for annual tuition. I mean, inflation, but even with inflation, can you imagine $1,500 for annual tuition? She did in fact have the money and she pulled out her bank book and she paid them. And they actually had to force her to complete her coursework separately from the other students who refused to study in the same classroom as her. So she had to work in a separate segregated classroom. The school director noticed Anne's talent and often would bring her work into the 
other classroom as a sample. And soon the other students were coming into Anne's classroom just to see what she was doing and to try and learn from her because she was like the star pupil. So after not wanting her in their classroom, they were like, we're racist, but we are going to steal your ideas. Classic, classic Americana. She graduated after just six months, even though it was a year-long program, with the school director claiming she was very good and he had nothing more that the school could teach her. She like graduated early because she was doing so well and so advanced. And she moved to Florida and she lived in Tampa designing dresses until she saved up enough money to own a shop in New York. And the first of her three New York City stores was Ann Lowe's Gowns in Harlem. Sadly, because Anne was a Black woman, many clients took advantage of her and underpaid her for her work, and she often couldn't even cover the cost of materials. Stars would remove the Anne Lowe tags from their gowns before wearing them on the red carpet to avoid giving her credit. And socialites kept her name out of conversation when they wore her gowns to parties. Anne lost her son, her only son, in a tragic accident, and because he ran her bookkeeping for her shop, she also was left without a business partner. Anne was primarily an artist and found it hard to manage the business and financial side of her work, and she quickly racked up a lot of debt, which was anonymously paid off by a wealthy individual rumored to be Jackie Kennedy, and this is what I was talking about earlier with the guilt. I think Jackie was like, oh shit, I'm a horrible person. Let me throw money at it to fix it, as all wealthy white women do at a time in their life. It is said that Christian Dior and Edith Head both admired Lowe's work and were inspired by her. Discrimination kept Anne underpaid and underappreciated. And while many designers of her time are household names today with fashion houses that still exist and still produce content, Anne is mostly forgotten in the fashion world. We don't have low bags and low fashion shows. However, dresses designed by Anne have been preserved in the Smithsonian, the Met, and several other notable design museums, and was rediscovered largely because of the work of Black designers and fashion historians, as well as Black collectors who preserved her work with her name attached to it, so we were able to identify her style and figure out what she made based on that. Like Louise K. Alexander Lane, who opened the Black Fashion Museum in Harlem and included some of Anne's work in her collection of dresses made or worn by notable Black women. And after Lois passed away, her daughter donated the museum's collection to Namak. So all of the stuff that was in the Black Fashion Museum that Lois ran became part of the Namak collection, which is really cool. So if you see any fashion pieces on display there, maybe check and see if it's from the collection of Lois K. Alexander Lane, because she collected a lot of really iconic stuff. One historian who contributed greatly to our current understanding of Anne's life is actually an alumni of the Corcoran College of Art and Design. Now, she went there before it was part of GW, but I would like to note that both Alana and I are, well, I'm an alumni, and Alana's a current student of the Corcoran College of Art and Design. Um, You're an alumna. Alumna. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. You got, you got it. Um, and this woman is named Margaret Powell. She wrote a biography on Anne called Sophisticated Lady. And it's a continuation of research she did for her master's thesis for her MA in Decorative Arts and Design History, which she got at the Corcoran School. I've linked the thesis, it's from 2012, in my show notes. So if you have time, I highly suggest you go read it and maybe buy the book too. It's coming out this year. It was scheduled for January and got delayed because of COVID. You could even pre-order that book from a local Black-owned bookstore. Just a thought. Or if you have a kiddo in your life, there's actually a book that's already published. It's called Fancy Party Gowns, the story of Anne Cole Lowe, which is incredibly adorable and tells the story of how Anne learned to make the flowers that she put on dresses and then how she became like a successful Black businesswoman and 
it actually covers a lot of like the racial prejudice in a way that kids can kind of grasp. So, and it's very direct about it. It's not like it goes around it. It's like, she was black and people were mean to her because she was black. And I love when a story can kind of incorporate like her success, but also talk about big issues for kids. So I included a video of a story time of that, but you should also buy that from a locally owned black bookstore if you would like to give that to a child in your life and, or you, because children's books are cool. Anne's contributions continue to influence fashion designers today, even when they do not realize who she was or what impact she had on the industry. Anne is kind of like the hidden figures, but not NASA fashion. Get it? Because figures, yeah, figure, like your, your silhouette. Like Thank you. It <laughs> it's a pun. Second, I got it. We're all well, so they did math today. figures. She did, she did body figures. Her dresses are really cool. I included some stuff for Haley to put in the YouTube of videos from like, I think one's from the Cincinnati Art Museum where it's a two-piece outfit that she created, like a belt and a skirt and a top. And there's really cool visuals out there of her work. So it's cool stuff. We used to love watching Say Yes to the Dress and One Bride in like the Southern Atlanta one. Oh, Say Yes to the Dress Atlanta? Yeah, 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 yeah uh she wanted to be like jackie o and i they all wanted to be like jackie o yes but like one episode they like pulled out like the real jackie o and i thought it was gorgeous and i was going through my phantom of the opera phase as well so i looked up and that's how i knew about ann low c'est l'histoire de coco chanel qui incarna la femme moderne avant de l'inventer. Comment vous vous appelez Tout le monde m'appelle Coco. So this is a long one and I'm really excited. I've gotten into researching, like Lexi will always say, vintage fashion, not vintage values. Lexi, did I get that? Did I quote you correctly? That is not my quote. Let me find the guy's name. I quote him all the time. Oh. Um, he is like a Dapper Dan stylist who is a black man. And so his big shtick and he like sells merchandise. What oh yeah, give name? him credit. I just always hear you saying it. Dandy Wellington. Yes. He's a Harlem-based yep. jazz singer. Um, and he originated the phrase, I think some people are stealing it and that's not chill. Stop stealing shit from black men. Thank you. Um, but anyway, I say it all the time because it's just so true and it's just so relevant and he sells merch with it on it. So if you want like a pin, if you're a vintage collector and you want like a pin that says like, I'm on the website now and I, oh my God, it's all sold out right now. Also his like symbol is a yeah. pigeon. So he has merch of like a pigeon in a tiny little dapper outfit, which is so cute. But yeah, as far as I know, it's his, it's his thing he popularized and it was really big last year because a lot was going on in the world and we're like the vintage fashion community is often very liberal people and people always make assumptions that it's people who have conservative values when in fact it's often the opposite so continue yes so i love the vintage fashion world and for this lovely man that gave us a lovely quote i'm sorry lexi i'm now not going to associate you with the quote as much Gotta go with the OG. Anywho, I've been researching like, basically like my staples. I love a button down. I love a power suit. I love loafers. So I've been kind of like researching those elements to make sure I'm not missing anything of like, who are the designers that are influencing me? It's been a good pandemic pastime and I've learned a lot. And that's why I wanted to kind of do Coco Chanel because also I'll get into it, but she's kind of been 
back in the system because social medias, Lexi said that with the pandemic and with all the chaos that's been happening, vintage clothing and not vintage values is because like a lot of vintage collectors and historians are liberals and people have been like shading some of the uh, fashion designers as they should be and saying like, hey, they weren't great, but we're still going to wear like something by them or something kind of like looks like it. And I'll get into that with Coco, but I have to do a content warning first. This content warning for this next story is because I will be talking about the Nazi party and genocide. And I'm going to start off by saying I might get a lot of hate with this story of Coco Chanel, but I don't care because these are all facts. And the fact is she was a Nazi. And I don't want to hear, oh, she was a Nazi sympathizer because that just makes no sense. Uh, Nazi sympathizers, literally from like the definition is they think and act within the ideals of the Nazi party. So like, then don't get it mixed up when I talk about like the beneficial things also that she's done within the fashion world because she has benefited the fashion world. I have worn the little black dress. I love the little black dress, but she still was a human being, a shitty human being. She was a human being. She was a shitty human being. Another fact about Gabrielle Bonahue Chanel is that she's known as like this timeless designer with pioneering, as I said, the little black dress and other fashion elements she didn't just like pop out of the womb as a fashion designer as like you kind of get the sense that she with the timeless like she's always been Coco Chanel while she did not have the best childhood her childhood did influence her as being someone who would sew because at age 12 her mother passed away and her father put her in an orphanage and this was in Paris I believe or in France one of the nuns at the orphanage taught her how to sew and gave her the nickname Coco. So that part lasted and that set her up. And she continued growing this talent of sewing and designing. And in her 20s, she was meeting more influential people. She became popular amongst Parisian literary and artistic worlds with designing costumes for different ballets and plays. Side note, this is around the time she became buddy-buddy with Pablo Picasso. And we all know he's a piece of molding bread on a humid day. We jump to the 1920s, kind of past her 20s, and Coco has this thriving business, but she really hit it out of the park with her first perfume, Chanel Number no. 5. The first fragrance to be named after a designer, and the number five was Coco's lucky number. You can still buy this perfume. However, when negotiating the deal on the perfume, she only got 10%. It was like two other big names run by dudes who got the other like, I think it was like 70 and 20%, very weird percentages going around. But with its massive success, she was able to renegotiate that deal. And still in the 1920s, we get the iconic Chanel suit and little black dress. These two designs were revolutionary for the time for three reasons. One, it took the element of menswear and quote menswear because fashion has no gender and I'll be screaming it from the rooftops, to the feminine world of clothing. Because in the 20s, fashion was very gendered. It showed that corsets and conforming pieces to your body were not a must to look elegant and fashionable. And that kind of also alluded to the menswear because menswear, they didn't wear corsets. And then third, the color black was 
a color associated and is still associated, especially within like Western civilization as a color for mourning and death. But she kind of said, hey, look, black can be chic and elegant. And another thing that she revolutionized at this point was the use of costume jewelry. She has said, quote, a woman needs ropes and ropes of pearls, end quote, with herself wearing a mixture of like fake pearls and real pearls. She noted that costume jewelry was a great invention because it made it easy for anyone to accessorize and look fabulous at any price. So like, honestly, kind of snaps for that. But again, at the same time, we're getting into the 30s of the Depression, and she still has these kind of shitty ideals, and they blossom because, cough, cough, Hitler comes into power in 1933, and her stories take a massive hit, and she essentially closes everything by the time of World War II. Side note, a lot of fashion blogs, magazines, and websites, like the Chanel website, often leave out that she has ties with the Nazi party. I kind of pick and chose which ones to leave in. Definitely the YouTube is more on the side that she was a no, no good person. Yes, Lexi. She kind of like became a spy for the Nazi party in a sense. That was like a term loosely used and I don't want a term loosely used with like the Nazi party. Like, and she like didn't rebuttal this. Like I never saw quotes of her saying, I'm not with the Nazi party. I'm not a spy for the Nazis. Or she was like friends or even lovers with Nazi officers, like overall believer in anti-Semitism, which is no good, like absolutely no good. I don't care who you are. That's just like, it makes me so frustrated that like anti-Semitism still a thing. Anywho, tangent, getting back to this long story. And after the war, she was actually called to trial And she wasn't charged with anything because she was specifically asked about her ties with officers, cough, cough, like her friends and that lover, because they're kind of going after the big fish. Just know that like in the 70s, she has like a rebirth of her brand. And I'll talk more about like her legacy because you can still buy like Coco Chanel as Lexi was talking about. She's dead, but others have taken over that brand and continued that brand and style. But Hal Vaughn wrote a book called Sleeping with the Enemy, Coco Chanel's Secret War. Of course, it's in the show notes. And subsequently, that book and author were featured in The New Yorker, also linked in the show notes. So if you read either, I'm referencing the penultimate question of given Coco Chanel's wartime past, what do you make of her kind of like popularity nowadays? Or should anyone still be wearing Coco Chanel? And that's basically the gist. I'm very much paraphrasing that question. I have very mixed feelings, and this is where we can kind of like discuss for a hot minute. But Hal basically goes, she didn't kill anyone. She didn't torture anyone. So you can't like compare her to like the Nazi officers or those who like actually murdered someone. Overall, like she's still fast. You can be person. charged as an accessory to murder. Exactly. You yeah. can like, aid in a bed. Where I, I kind of like I... lost hope in this like book. Her grandniece, I guess, also talked to the author. In the article, it said she said to me, "Quote, you know, Mr. Vaughn, these were very difficult times, and people had to do the very terrible things to get along." End quote. And like, he ended up putting, closing this question with, Chanel was very simply put, an enormous opportunist who did what she had to do to get along. 
I'm smelling some bull crap oh, in the air. Excuse me. How about the countless women who lived through the exact same situation as her and handled it very differently? And I was very excited when I found this book from the title. You think it's going to be like very, she was not a good person. Here's why. Lastly, we have our legacy and it's a like New York City themed. And you know, those like knockoff designer stuff like bags and sunnies on the New York City streets. Yeah, you with me. So you guessed it, you can buy like Chanel knockoffs. And in a Vogue article, it notes that Coco actually supported the knockoffs of her designs. Like when she discovered it, Vogue was like, she wasn't okay with it. She supported it because she kind of like was amused by others replicating her designs with cheaper fabrics and like selling it at a lower price. I think I'd be pissed. That's like my intellectual property. I think I'd be pissed if someone was like, oh, I'm going to do this at a cheaper. I don't know. Maybe like part of me would be like good for them. They found a way around the system. But a part of me would be like, that's my name. What truly disgusts and disturbs me is when there's like these Etsy stores and Redbubble accounts that sell these like pulled out of context Coco Chanel quotes. And people are like, oh, it's so feminine. And it's, it's like, they think it's like this ultimate goal to reach for and they don't know anything about her and they don't know anything that's going on and if you ask them they could not tell you so veronica chow was born in 1984 in hawaii the next generation in a long line of fashion designers uh, one of my sources called her a fashion heiress Um, And she would follow her father, Silas Chow, around the factories and ask a zillion questions like, what does this do? What's this thing? And we we love to see inquisitive women. So she started her own company, Iconics Brand Group, which took American fashion brands to mainland China. Um, And it was based in China. And so she was flying around all the time. And she noticed the air pollution uh, and wanted to do something about the horrible impact that the fashion industry has on the environment. So in 2012, she sold that company. Also in 2012, she got married to some like Russian businessman. uh, And this wedding is bananas. 1,500 people came. They had a Cirque du Soleil performer at their wedding. Crazy rich Asians. I didn't want to say it, but... No, if you've ever seen that movie, I picture that. It's straight out of Crazy Rich Asians. I do think they're divorced now. Anyway... She started investing in all these green fashion companies, including one that grows leather in a lab, all culminating in 2019 when she launched her own sustainable fashion company called Everybody and Everyone, which is size inclusive, double zero to 24, carbon neutral, and one of my sources called them affordable, but uh, $50 for a plain t-shirt is not affordable. But they partner with companies like One Tree Planted, so they plant one tree for every product purchased which is nice, but $50 for a t-shirt is not affordable. The least expensive thing I on their site. I think it's probably because in the fashion world, that would seem cheap because in the That's fashion ridiculous. world, a t-shirt would be $400. Yeah. Can I Incorrect. add something? Fuck I want the whole- fashion industry. I hate this episode. Can I be an ass and say it's actually not size inclusive? It's not size inclusive. It's yeah. it's like air quotes size inclusive. Double zero to 24, 24 is kind of is- like- well, a 24 is a 2X. Can we just make H&M sustainable? 
$50 for a t-shirt is not affordable. The least expensive thing on their website is $18, and it is a thing of three produce bags. I don't know if you guys shop at Trader Joe's, but you can get a pack of two at Trader Joe's for like five. So anyways, that's sorry to end me being angry, but that's all I have. She's still alive. You know, she's still doing fashion industry things. Maybe she'll actually keep growing this line. We'll do an update to this episode. She'll be doing more things and we'll be able to be like, here, look, this is something cool that Veronica Chow has done lately. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode, as well as our merch, will be on ladyhistorypod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibari. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at LexiBDraws. Our theme music is by me, Garage Band, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. during this like I specifically was like I'm gonna make some fiber art while talking about fashion